here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Except Jessica from the Netflix reality show Love is Blind. She did Mark wrong, and we all know it. I really need you to explain this. What the hell is Love is Blind and who is Jessica? It's a social experiment based on real life now, I guess. You meet people uh-huh. without ever having seen them and agree to marry them. And it causes trauma in everyone's lives. She apparently. left Mark at the, author, at the altar. It was terrible. So I have one more important question than Love is Blind. Good. Who are you and what did you do with Stephanie Nakajima? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Uh, so I am, you don't get to introduce me here? Come on. Jillian Mason. I'm your guest. Oh, we're kind of besties. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell the peoples how we first met, mm-hmm. what you do for a living, and why you uh, emoji love Medicare for All. Okay. So, um, I actually, I mean, my story with Medicare for All actually starts back when I was an adjunct professor um, and a grad student and super duper sick and completely broke from paying my medical bills. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it was fantastic because <laughs> uh, nothing makes illness better than paying for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> People think of professors as have, like ivory tower, like having good pay, good benefits. Oh, my God. Turns out not always true. Not, yeah, and frequ- frequently not. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I started to get sick, and that's when I started to um, see these people around who were doing healthcare activism and talking about the fact that this is a bigger problem. And I think I was one of those people who was really ashamed about my healthcare mm-hmm. issues and, you know, embarrassed that I couldn't pay my bills and that kind of thing. And so meeting folks like Benjamin Day mm-hmm. um, definitely, um, you know, sort of made me see this as a systemic problem. Indoctrinator in, in mm-hmm. chief. Indoctrinator. <laughs> it just really rolls off the tongue. Yes. And we should mention that the first place we met actually was when we were arrested together in a jail cell in a jail cell <laughs> uh, when we were arrested together at Cigna Healthcare that's right in the affluent suburb of Newton where i think Probably the first civil disobedience that had ever happened there ever before. I know that for sure. I asked the police on the way to the station. I got put in an isolation cell. It was clear that you were (laughs) a rabble rouser. (laughs) You got put in with like three amazing other women Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the action. So those were good times. Thank you so much for being here while Stephanie is off gallivanting in Denmark, enjoying her free health (laughs) care. I'm psyched to be here, but I'm, you know, a little anxious about filling Stephanie's shoes. You don't have to just be yourself. Yeah, all right. Um, so, the a lot of exciting things have happened. I'm glad we didn't. Have, I was prepared to skip this week, but we had Super Tuesday. Um, it was super in the election. It was super weird. Mm. Um, so I'm going to start with the good news, which is that Medicare for All cleaned up on Super Tuesday. Yeah, I think we might want to consider running Medicare for All as a candidate. <laughs> <laughs> um, we would have a new president by now. Um, so mm. Medicare for All, uh, this is actually the first election we've ever had Medicare for All polls in every single primary state of the Democratic primary. Mm. Um, and Medicare for All has won in every single state so far, including all the Super Tuesday states, at least 50 percent and up. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole 
painful list of percentages, but I'm going to call out. No, it's a beautiful list of percentages, uh, it is, but it's it long. Is. It's long. It starts here in Massachusetts where just barely cleared it with 50%. But I'd like to give some shout outs to for, for Vermont, first of all. Yes. 73% support. Where And I remind you, people often point to Vermont and falsely say, oh, they tried it and it didn't work there. They didn't actually try it there. They didn't quite get to there. Mm-hmm. Um, Maine, news. 69%. Uh, that's two Republican senators in Maine. Texas, 63% support for Medicare for All, and Minnesota, 62%. So shout out to those states. Yes, absolutely. People really seem to love the idea of getting health care and not having to go broke. <laughs> I don't understand it. We need to analyze mm-hmm. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and interestingly, NBC did like uh, actually broke out the support by demographics. And they found, uh, this stuck out to me, in Texas, 76% of Latinx voters in Texas supported Medicare for All, far more than even the high percentage that supports it among the general population. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, You know, I mean, if I were um, living in a Latinx community, if I had friends and family who were undocumented in particular, Mm -hmm. I mean, Medicare for All is really the solution um, for those problems until, of course, we come up with a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million immigrants, but uh, who are currently undocumented in this country. Regardless, um, you know, I always think about um, one of our friends who's, um, you know, she's spent really, um, she's been in this country for 30 years with her Mm -hmm. father. Her father's been working in a plastics factory for that 30 years. I'm just, sure there's no health-related issues involved <laughs> with working in a plastics factory. Just like working his body to death, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, basically what happened was um, he found out that when he was, you know, as he was getting older, he was like, I'm not even going to be able to access, um, you know, health care as I get older. He's been paying into Social Security right. his entire life. Um, and then it turned out actually in the end that he was able to access health care, but it took his right. daughter advocating for him tirelessly before they were even able to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, and I think he got it through a very Massachusetts-specific like safety net program. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that we think of Medicare as like a universal program, like everyone over 65. Once you turn right. 65, you get Medicare. Not true. If you're undocumented, you actually do not qualify for Medicare. And this means, you know, most pe- folks who are undocumented who work their whole lives are paying into Medicare yep. their whole life. That percentage of their payroll tax comes out and they pay for it. And then they are not eligible for the benefits when they get older. Um, so that's shocking. Some bullshit. Yeah. And even for the documented population, uh, the Latino population is the most uninsured in the country, mm-hmm. um, far more so than any other group pretty much in the country. Um, so uh, the other part of this is that uh, aside from Medicare for All winning Super Tuesday, uh, <laughs> Joe Biden also cleaned up on Super Tuesday, which is an interesting disparity. What is up with that? It's so interesting and weird. Um, uh, I, I posted on Facebook. I was like, I don't understand how some of these states went very strong Medicare for All, um, but then the Medicare for All candidates did very poorly. And it, and, of course, everyone was kind of mansplaining it to me. They're like, oh, Ben, people aren't single-issue voters. And it's like, I, I get it, but it's still weird. It's good to know that people are mansplaining <laughs> things to you, too. Yes. <laughs> no one is safe. Um, and, like, the extreme version of this is NBC also asked uh, Democratic primary voters what they think about socialism. Mm. So never mind Medicare for all. Um, and, interestingly, four states... Uh, a majority of Democratic voters said that they have a favorable view of socialism. If you had to guess, which four would you guess? I'm going to guess that they were. No, you've already shown me the statistics. Damn I it. can't even <laughs> pretend to guess. No. 
<clears throat> so uh, interestingly enough, the four states were California. That's maybe predictable. Mm-hmm. Then North Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. So the South cleaning up on socialist voters. And again, uh, Texas, this is a state that Biden won, Mm -hmm. uh, went very, very strong for Medicare for all, 63% of voters. And then 57% of primary voters in Texas support socialism. And they voted for Joe Biden. How do we explain the, the gap? Okay, so here's my theory, right? Uh-huh. And, and this, again, it takes it reminds me so much of um, in Massachusetts when we paid um, when we passed um, paid sick days on the ballot, right? Uh-huh. That was exactly the same year that folks elected Charlie Baker. <laughs> so we had paid sick days winning by seventy three percent, and then Charlie Baker being elected as our a governor. Sick governor. <laughs> For those around the country who don't know, he's an, a former health insurance executive. Yes, CEO of one of the biggest health insurance companies who is now. <laughs> Now our Republican governor of Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. I, just, I guess like what I'm taking away from that lesson and then from these polls and stuff is that I think people understand the issues, but that the kind of horse race politics, the MSNBC, the Fox right. News, right, right, that that kind of mystifies the electoral process for mm-hmm. them. So when you put the ideas before people, they say, yeah, this is exactly what I want. They know exactly mm-hmm. what they want and what they need. But when you say things like who's electable and, you know, get pundits involved mm-hmm. with, you know, again, all that horse race politics stuff. It gives me flashbacks to 2016. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess the, the mainstream narrative about this is that the Democratic primary voters are like obsessed with electability this year. They care more about getting rid of yeah. Trump than anything else. Yeah. And there's a perception that centrism is somehow going to win. And I feel like we did this. I just, oh, well, when did this happen again? I feel like we've been through this once before. Um, I feel oh, like I'm remembering it from 2016. Oh, oh, yeah, there was some trauma that might have wiped this out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the other, I mean, my first reaction to this was just utter confusion. Like, I, I can't pretend really to understand mm. what's going on mm-hmm. in, this, uh, in this democratic mm-hmm. process. Um, but I think there also might be a thing, you know, outside of like the punditry and the TV stations and radio and all this, um, I do feel like local community leaders who are kind of like gatekeepers totally play a major role in which candidates win and which ones lose. All those ward um, chairs and yeah, yeah, exactly. Sitting members of Congress often have significant influence because they have you know pretty deep roots in their communities. They do you know. Uh, they do constituent services in their roots. They know a lot of in their districts. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can turn out folks. I feel like a lot of those gatekeepers across the country yeah. were not all in on Biden, uh, maybe up until, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped yeah. out. They weren't convinced that he could win. But once the dominoes started falling, yeah. I think probably a lot of gatekeepers jumped in. God only in, knows right? what unholy things that <laughs> Mayor Pete and Amy were promised in favor of you know caving. But yeah, no, I think that totally makes sense. <laughs> Who gets the chief of staff? Who gets the uh, secretary of secretary state? Secretary of the interior. I don't oh know. my god! <laughs> All right, um, I'm already sick of of the elections. Great. Um, let's move on. Um, so you know. My theory is that Medicare for All won, is winning the, the pro- Democratic primaries. But there is another take, um, which is that Wall Street is winning the primaries, at least as of Super Tuesday. Um, an interesting thing happened immediately after Super Tuesday. <laughs> like, what do you call the Wednesday after Super Tuesday? The 
Hangover Wednesday. The post-traumatic stress <laughs> Wednesday. PTSD Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, interesting thing, which is that healthcare stocks started skyrocketing, um, particularly health insurance companies, but basically the whole bunch of like healthcare profiteers. Um, now, a lot of those stocks had dropped immediately after Bernie Sanders did well in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, we almost talked about it on our podcast last week. But around the same time was the whole coronavirus like stock market dive. Mm-hmm. So I, we, no one was really sure if it was coronavirus or if it was fear of Bernie and Medicare for all dropping those stocks. Sure. But now, but there, now you know. there is really no <laughs> doubt. So I'm going to play this little clip from CNBC. This is like their Wall Street analyst. This is Jeff Kilberg. Um, he works for one of these big, uh, whatever, financial analysis firms. Great Our guy. good friend, Kilberg, <laughs> uh, talking about the uh, the jump in health stocks. Look at a name like UNH, United Health. It's been a beat up name or look even at a broader swath, the ETF XLV, been beat up all year long. But pre-market, UNH is really seeing a resurgence up about 4% due to the fact that Biden is really feeling the burn. So it'll be really interesting to see how this works out. The next couple weeks, there will be a slugfest, but I think this really is being well-received on Wall Street as it's wonderful Wednesday for Joe Biden. So, so Tony, this is interesting because Jeff brings up a great point. We're showing United Health right now on the, on the chart. Mm-hmm. You could also show CVS Health. You could show any large health insurance company or pharmacy benefits manager or anyone else tied to managed care in America because the possibility of a Joe Biden candidacy to, to the presidency is better for perhaps taking away the threat of Medicare for all and things like that. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, so yeah, they. This was actually an early thing. They understated it. Um, uh, United Health. Uh, their stock prices went up almost 11 percent in one day, um, and the entire Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 1,200 points, and 180 of those points was just United Health. Just this one, the largest for-profit insurance company in the country. And congratulations. You, I, I just want to congratulate yeah. them. On, I assume they listen to this podcast. Yeah. Oh, well, they do great work. <laughs> they do such good work. <laughs> um, and it's not just them. It's the whole group. So these are this is like the, the hit list of the largest for-profit insurance companies in the country. Anthem, their stock went up 14% in one day. Centene, 12% in one day. Cigna, this is actually where we got arrested. Mm-hmm. And Cigna Office went up 11% in one day. Humana, 11%. Uh, CVS Corp, 6%. HCA Healthcare, I don't even know who the fuck that is, went up 5%. Um, so what do we make of this? And I guess what are some of the takeaways of uh, Wall Street, I think, taking Medicare for all threats seriously? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, right. Like, so that's a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we got people a little bit scared, right? It's that Gandhi quote, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, or whatever. I'm waiting for that last part. <laughs> Not waiting for it. Fighting for that last fighting part. Fighting for it. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I mean, I don't know. What, what are you even going to take away from this? These are people who make money off of other people's illness. It's literal blood money. Mm-hmm. I always say, you know, how did big insurance get so big? They're standing on a pile of corpses. I mean, <laughs> super gross, but totally true. Yeah. So, I mean, it's this immoral industry, and it's it's really, I mean, it's literally blood money. These people should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. There are, um, you know, there's socially responsible investment, like, funds mm. um, that, you know, they, like, don't invest in tobacco or gun manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of them continue to invest in insurance company, health insurance companies. Sure thing. Which basically, 
those you only get those profits if they're taken from patients, right? Yeah. Um, they only come off the backs of denying care and avoiding the sick. Um, and I guess the the challenge to our movement that this represents, though, is that it does potentially create like another group of opposition. Yeah. You know, like um, although there are, you know, disproportionately it's wealthy people who this is affecting their money, but mm-hmm. also people mm-hmm. with 401k retirement funds who could potentially be impacted. Or invested in mutual funds or something yeah. like that, where they're not even sure exactly what companies they're invested in. All they're going to see is that their investments are going to shrink and they're going to blame that on Medicare for all. And ironically, uh, not that many decades ago, when workers had actual pensions, like guaranteed pensions. Hmm. <laughs> uh, Thinking back here. This, yeah, this, a while ago. this wouldn't have been a thing, right? Um, mm. Your pension would be guaranteed regardless of what happens in the stock market by your employer. Um, but now that uh, retirement has been so privatized, yep. and basically people only have stock retirements, uh, suddenly it becomes uh, a bit of a challenge for us. Um, uh, the other thing that that occurs to me is that, um, you know, with, with the right, the healthcare industry grows even during recessions yeah. and depressions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically like an unstoppable growth machine. Um, <laughs> and all of that comes at the expense of other industries, right? And yeah. uh, we know this because, of course, you know, we work at small nonprofits where we have to pay for health care. Yeah, we um, do. I mean, what is it like at Jobs of Justice where you work? Is the Oh, yeah, we never actually mentioned what I do for a living now. Oh, but, this is um... a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, the long and the short of it is that Ben Day radicalized me, and, um, and I ended up um, getting more and more involved with activism and organizing. And um, now today I'm the co-director at Massachusetts Jobs with Justice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Kicking Um, ass for the working class. (laughs) Every day. Every day we do bad things to bad bosses. (laughs) So, yeah, so we advocate for workers' rights. And one of the things that we advocate for, of course, is Medicare for all. Awesome. Yeah. But we do um, pay our employees. um, We do give them health care benefits like a good employer should. And does that like totally bleed you dry as a nonprofit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. Whenever I think of, you know, the growth of the healthcare industry and the growth of these profits, I think of how much my premiums go up every year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. every time it, it's different for everyone. I think it's around September when ours turns over. So like two months before that, we start getting the, oh, God, yeah. the rate increase. Um, and it's just, you know. 10, 11, 12, 15, 20% each year it goes up if you want to keep the same benefits that you've had before. Yeah, and like, I mean, you know, we're not getting the Cadillac plan that we would love to get because it's just literally fiscally impossible. Yeah, and I mean, we are like, well, we're not really like all these other industries, but we are kind of like all these other (laughs) industries in that we could hire more people if we didn't have to pay so much for healthcare. That is I mean, so true. It's kind of like carrying extra staff people, just this, the incredible burden of healthcare premiums and how fast they go up. Yeah, yeah, it's huge, huge. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about a study that is near and dear to your heart. It um, is, it is. So uh, this is the Economic Policy Institute released a white paper about how Medicare for All would help the labor market. Shocker. Which I think uh, is a little bit code for would help workers, but they're also talking about how it would, in general, um, it would it would create job growth. Mm-hmm. Um, they say it would create job growth even within the healthcare sector, mm-hmm. um, even including once you include for you know folks who work in insurance companies who would lose their jobs. Right. There would be some. Um, all of our bills uh, have a just transition plan where we would have to take care of those workers. Of course. Um, but there will be general job growth. They say it would increase wages and salaries, also 
probably obvious since we're giving up our wage increases every year for continuing to have health care. Um, it says it would eliminate job lock. This is where you you know stick with a job you hate just right. because you get your health benefits through it. Um, they call that a hostage situation. Yes, <laughs> that's I, and you know some people are held hostage in their marriages too, just to keep health health insurance. Not even not just by their workers, uh, by their bosses. Um, and they also mention uh, this little thing that it would be a particular benefit for female workers who are disproportionately have jobs that do not provide health care as a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine that you see this anywhere in your work life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, how uh, workers, because, you know, Jobs of Justice is a coalition that works both with unions, but also with, you know, community groups who represent working class people mm-hmm. who are often non-unionized. Um, tell us a little bit about, like, the role that you see healthcare care Im- impacting the lives of unionized and non-union workers um, and how Medicare for All might make a difference. I mean, in terms of like non-union workers, right, mm-hmm. it's just a disaster, right? right? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, there's no, without a contract, you're not going to get decent health care benefits anywhere in this mm-hmm. country. Um, and of course, the, um, you know, the uh, industries where people tend to not be unionized mm-hmm. are things like, you know, retail, hospitality, mm-hmm. those things are changing. But yeah, issues, right. Yeah. So they tend to be like low income, hourly jobs, right. gig economy shit, you know, like, right. All of that stuff, you're just screwed, you know? Yep. I mean, Lyft does not have a health insurance plan. Yeah, I, I worked at a nonprofit um, supermarket in upstate New York for a year. A nonprofit <laughs> a, a, a supermarket. A nonprofit, no, a, sorry, a non-union supermarket. Very it good, was yeah. not a nonprofit, it was a for-profit chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they had health benefits once you go over certain hours. Yeah. And they kept everyone under those hours, except for like the store manager, basically. Yeah, precisely. Right. Like, I mean, it's, so that's I mean, for, for non-union workers, you know, healthcare is just an ongoing crisis and an ongoing disaster. And we're just, you know, I mean, just, yeah, people are just bleeding over that every day. And then, um, you know, for union workers, though, of course, it, it really poses a very similar problem, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they have protections at work. Right. Um, and you know, what was this like when you were... Uh, you know, organizing uh, when you were a professor still and you were yeah. trying to bargain for, for benefits for when adjunct we, professors. Yeah, when we started our union at mm-hmm. Suffolk University um, for the uh, adjunct professors, um, you know, we basically, we made a uh, contract mistake, a, a amateur <laughs> mistake, I'm going to say, um, which is that we traded off improving our health care coverage for higher wages. And okay. within two years, we saw that it was, um, you know, just untenable because no wage increase that we could, you know, conceivably get from the university right. was going to make up for the, you know, the cost of health care. Right? right. That was shifted onto the workers. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like adjunct professors, it's, it's kind of similar in a way to these supermarkets in retail yeah. where it's like um, they are shifting dramatically to part time work just yeah. to avoid health benefits or any other kind of benefits that might be mandated. Totally. Um, and then as a worker, you end up screwed without health care, but then you also can't assemble enough hours to actually live off of. Yeah, that's a real problem. And that's why, you know, that's why everybody, you know, uh, drives Uber or Lyft in the evenings. Right, right. Which you know? we, I did not have that option at the time when no, I was working at the no, supermarket. No. Now we um, have the technology to exploit you even further. Oh, God, the gig economy. <laughs> but I mean, um, you know, I mean, speaking of like uh, grocery stores, right? Mm. Like the, there was a massive stop and shop strike mm. um, last year in April. And I think it was, uh, you know, like 31,000 workers all wow. out on strike. Mm-hmm. And one of their major 
issues was healthcare benefits yeah. and shifting the cost of healthcare to um, workers, right? Yeah. So imagine what contract negotiations would be like if unions didn't have to negotiate healthcare every time. It would almost be like unions in every other country <laughs> that has Medicare for all, like Canada, for example. You could just negotiate for for wages, basically, and 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 working conditions. Yeah, which would be pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's the dream. Since we're on this uh, subject of workplace, and last yes. week we talked a little bit about coronavirus. Um, we talked about obviously without a universal healthcare system. Uh, the threat is really dangerous because people are afraid to go to their doctors because they yeah. can't afford to go to their doctors. Uh, but there's also this intersectionality with all the other things, sa- safety net programs we're missing in the yeah. United States. Um, tell us a little bit about how this interacts with your work, Jobs of Justice, and like the threat to workers that coronavirus is, is, is posing now. Yeah, I mean, I'm terrified right now for workers all over the country, all over mm-hmm. the world, really. Um, but in particular in the U.S., since we have such crappy paid sick leave policies, right. um, you know, so many workers are going to be exposed to a major risk of losing their jobs if they don't go to work, either because they're, you know, actually exposed to the virus or because of some kind of quarantine issue, right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if your if your kid's school shuts down, right? Right. You, you, you got to take, care for them. Yeah. yeah, you have to care for your kid, and you probably yeah. can't bring your kid to work, right. unless you work at a small social justice nonprofit. Right. <laughs> That's everyone, right? Yeah. No. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but you know, if transportation ends up getting um, you know restricted, right, and right. uh, that means that you know anyone who um, you know takes mass transit to work is going to be impacted. Right. And what we know is that workers, um, you know, get retaliated against mm-hmm. when they take sick time off by their employers and it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to determine when it's retaliation so it's very difficult to call employers out on this but happens every day right now and we're about to go into this you know period where um you know well whatever it's Armageddon. Clusterfuck. <laughs> Clusterfuck. Yeah, yeah. I feel that every year, but we're still standing, still mm, fighting. Yes, we are. We are still standing and still fighting. And and some people are doing really great work around this for working people. But it's um it's just something that I want everyone to keep in mind is that, you know, not only do we need um, Medicare for all, but we also need things like paid sick days policies. Um, and that's really huge. But it also the fact that we don't have Medicare for all and the fact that we don't have paid sick leaves, that actually it all goes back to the same problem right, right. which is like mm-hmm. the complete disregard for health as anything other than a number in a balance sheet right and i would say probably goes back to the lack of workers power in general in the united states Straight and our up. ability to, to sort of win basic uh, human rights and protection mm-hmm. for human rights yeah um so you know and th- this reminds me a little bit of um you know i i feel like disasters in general mm-hmm. <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of they kind of highlight um they they highlight exactly how dysfunctional our healthcare system is, but also, you know, our entire social safety net, um, sort oh, of yeah. humane safety net is. Um, you know, when you think about Katrina, for example, hitting Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, I mean, obviously, people uh, lost their documentation in a lot of cases. Their houses mm-hmm. were underwater. They didn't have birth certificates. They didn't have uh, driver's license. They just, like, left with the clothes on their back. Um, they couldn't get access to health care because the hospitals were underwater. They didn't have mm-hmm, health insurance. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you imagine having an in-network plan where your in-network mm-hmm. is underwater? Yeah. Right. Are you going to get charged <laughs> the out-of-network co-pays and, co- and deductibles? I mean, no one can afford that. Um, and not to mention that all uh, so many people after that disaster lost their jobs. And with that, you oh, lose yeah. your health insurance. 
So our healthcare system basically makes us as a country incapable of handling disasters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I hope coronavirus doesn't become that, but it highlights the the risks I think that we now are all facing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just exposes all the cracks in the system. You can say the same thing about, um, you know, the uh, uh, various natural crises in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. which are, you yeah, know, of course, Jesus. deeply intertwined with the man-made fiscal crisis right, in right. Puerto Rico. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, though, right, like you get to see the cracks a little bit. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a side note about Puerto Rico. A lot of people don't know this, but um, uh, so when Medicare and Medicaid were passed in the 60s, actually, Puerto Rico and all the territories were included mm-hmm. um, uh, with Medicaid, uh, full coverage. And uh, sh- just a few years later, they decided to dramatically slash the funding to Puerto Rico. Cool. And, cool. And, and Such bullshit. So uh, in most states, the federal government pays about 50 percent of, of the Medicaid and then the, the state has to pay the rest. Mm. Puerto Rico, it's way down there. It's like 20 percent or something like that. Hmm. So actually, the bulk of the fiscal crisis in Puerto Rico is their their health care costs that are just crushing the Puerto Rican oh, budget. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this on top of, of course, the disaster. And the infrastructure stuff yeah. and, and everything that's going exactly. on there. So yeah. they've been totally fucked over primarily by the U.S. healthcare system as it's been designed by Congress. Um, Again, I'd like to extend my congratulations uh, to the people who are really benefiting off of this. Like, yeah, yeah, and that's know? all profits. That's actually like oh, stock bump. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the last thing we should talk about is Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the race. So yep, she yep, was yep. one of the two like real Medicare for All supporters in this race behind Bernie Sanders. Um, although, actually, we started out the race with a lot of Medicare for All supporters, and then they <laughs> gradually dropped like flies over the course of not that many months. It was a very short-lived <laughs> trend. Yeah. Um, and I guess what, you know, we don't get into politics here. We don't get into backing one candidate or another. Um, but what's interesting to me is a lot of commentators have just have kind of placed mm. blame for why she didn't do better than everyone thought she would on uh, how she handled the Medicare for all, her Medicare for all position. A lot of people will remember during one of the debates, she was kind of called out for, is is your Medicare for all plan gonna uh, raise taxes mm-hmm. for middle class people? And if so, how are you gonna pay for it? I'm gonna play a little clip from that debate just to refresh our memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's gonna be an epic Buttigieg. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it, too? So the way I see this, it is about what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face. So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy, they will go up for big corporations, and for middle class families, they will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. Mayor Buttigieg, you say Senator Warren has been, quote, evasive about how she's going to pay for Medicare for all. What's your response? Well, we heard it tonight, a yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. What a douche. Wow. <laughs> hate that guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just to take one article here, although I could have picked a dozen of them, this is an NBC News article, and they said, the biggest damage to Warren on Medicare for All might not have been about policy details at all, 
but that the fight revived concerns about her electability among soft supporters. I don't even know what a soft supporter is. Um, mm-hmm. Majorities of Democratic primary voters still supported Medicare for all in exit polls, but they are also focused on beating Trump and Warren's decline suggested some were nervous about putting the issue front and center in a general election. So their take is actually that Medicare for all cost her her election. Wow. <laughs> That's the opposite of my take. Oh, yeah. What's your take on it? <laughs> I mean, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. she started to tank in the polls when she started to distance herself from mm-hmm. Medicare for all. When she started, instead of pitching it as Medicare for all, as this like transition plan, incremental change or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, you know, you know, rightfully she wanted to distinguish herself from Bernie because all the candidates have to distinguish themselves right. mm-hmm. um, by having, you know, worse policies or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think that like actually like shying away from the whole narrative of Medicare for all actually kind of screwed her in the end. Yeah. And I, you know, we haven't delved deep on the on the Elizabeth Warren transition plan. It's not dramatically different from the Bernie Sanders bill. You know, right. the Sanders bill has this four-year transition during which he does a public option. Um, he His thing is like, we'll pass the bill right away. And the bill, once passed, includes this public option transition. And then you get to Medicare for all. The Elizabeth Warren plan was, well, we'll first pass a public option right. for two years. Right. And then we'll do the Medicare for all plan. There was no, you know, extraordinary details. Um, you on remember what the when we were going to do that in 20, 2008? When was this? Do well, oh, well, you remember then, when we were planning on doing that? You mean in the run-up to the Affordable Care Act? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that why we got arrested? Oh, it was for both. It was uh, we were doing a, a patient's oh. bill of rights. Oh, for right. Signal is my memory. Right, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, uh, Obamacare was supposed to be the public option transition, right? Right, right, <laughs> and, uh, right. Ten right. years later, or more so. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's like a narrative question, though, right? right? Like, I mean, you know. I mean, it, it is, I think this, like, what it illustrates, is, well, I mean, a misogyny, right? right like, yes. I mean, yeah, can't, can't not mention that. Um, mm-hmm. Very important, but... Especially after that Buttigieg line. He didn't go after Bernie, no, you'll no. notice, for no. any of this stuff. I think it did create a, a, a sense from the left that she was distancing herself from Medicare for All. Yeah. Um, because it's like, why do we need another plan? Um, and it, I don't think it was a crazy plan compared to the Sanders plan. Um, but I think the thing that got me was, um, you know, I remember bird dogging Elizabeth Warren <laughs> on her very first election campaign. Do she, tell, Ben. She she actually so she had an exploratory um, sort of series of house parties across Massachusetts when she was thinking about running for Senate for the very first time. I, I just have to say, people yes. outside of politics hear the term house party uh-huh. and they think of it as like a party. No, this was there was no. nothing fun about this party, no. but no. it was in a house. <laughs> it was a small gathering of people um, in in Jamaica Plain, which is the neighborhood of Boston. Um, and Elizabeth Warren, this was her the, her second one, her second like exploratory small group gathering. Um, and I asked her, I was like, if elected, would you co-sponsor the Medicare for All bill in the Senate? And she refused to answer. Um, and she sort of talked around it. She said, well, you know, I know how serious this problem is. I support universal health care. I think health care is a right. I did all this research on medical bankruptcy, which is true. She did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, you didn't answer the question. Could you answer it again? And she talked around it again. Mm-hmm. And I said, you, you still haven't answered the question. I pushed her three times until it was getting really awkward in the room. <laughs> um, so she was kind of a latecomer to the Medicare for All movement. 
Um, and I, I, I try not to hold this against candidates because this is the whole point of organizing, right? We want to bring people yeah. into the movement. Mm -hmm. And I think to do that, you have to like fully embrace folks. You can't be like, oh, you weren't here soon enough. So yeah. you know, we're going to eye you with distrust forever. Um, but I do think it was the issue of how she talks about taxes. She was asked about taxes yeah. and she just refused to answer, which was, you know, when, when she refused to answer my question about Medicare for all, I, it just really left a bad impression on me. I mm -hmm. I had this simmering sense of like, and I generally liked all of her other stuff on, on financial yeah, regulation. Sure, sure. She was awesome. I liked her as a candidate, but I was like, it just so pissed me. It's it's like the ultimate mark of inauthenticity, I think. If you refuse to sort of give a straight up answer about what you think about something. Um, and I think it was a problem for her that she was trying to embrace Medicare for all, but not embrace the financing mechanism the mm -hmm. more just, mm -hmm. more equitable financing mechanism <laughs> that you pay for Medicare for All with, which is taxes. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't think Bernie did like a full embrace of taxes either, but... Um, I mean, at least he talks about it, right? Yeah. He's like, you know, how are we going to pay for it? We're going to tax the billionaires. We're going right. to tax the financial. Do you want me to do my Bernie impression? It's great. I'll do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll tax the billionaires. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that, right? Um, Jersey isn't that far from, uh, from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> Yeah, shout out to the Mid-Atlantic. I feel like, um, you know, ultimately paying for things through taxes is more progressive than paying for it through premiums. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, a premium is the same amount that everyone pays, whether they're rich or poor, whether you can't afford it, or whether it's like 0.000001% of your income. But if you pay through a tax system, it is fair and equitable. You're paying a share that you can afford. Um, and that is how our healthcare system should be paid for. And I kind of wish both of them would just stand up for it. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's really hard to make the case to people who don't feel like they're getting a lot from their right. government, yeah, right? They totally. don't feel like they're getting a good return on their taxes. Right, but, right. you know, taxes are like the moral high ground. And right. on the left, we really have to start claiming that yeah. or else, you know, we're we're losing ground fast. Universal healthcare is actually a really good benefit that you will notice having. <laughs> yeah, no, that would probably make a difference in my life. Yeah. <laughs> Same. And um, I'm a middle class white lady. And we have insurance and we're still kind of <laughs> fucked over. Um, you know, interesting side note about Canada here. Oh, yeah. So um, there's an interesting uh, a book comparing Canada and the United States and how they got universal health care and we didn't. Um, and actually, this uh, the argument was that the way that Canada got health, a universal health care plan um, it had to do with Quebec almost seceding from Canada. Oh. There was two ballot initiatives uh, twice in a row that almost passed having Quebec <laughs> leave, having French Canada basically secede from Canada. Awesome. Um, so one of the primary reasons of establishing healthcare as a right nationally was that there would be this incredible benefit that all Quebecois residents would have from the federal government that would kind of attach them to their country and develop a sense of you know, national pride mm -hmm, and this. Mm -hmm. um, and it it struck me when you said, you know, people here hate paying taxes <laughs> because we don't have any of those national <laughs> benefits, right, that would give you a sense of national pride. Yeah, totally. Um, I like that, though. I like that, that this is how we should be pitching this, right? Is like, <laughs> and there are a lot of disenfranchised voters right. around there. Let's make them feel like part of the country. Let's let's give them, give them the health care. Yeah. And I, I just think we do have to stand up for taxes. Um, 
because it is the equitable way to pay for shit. Totally, (laughs) totally. And we just have to keep emphasizing that what we want is progressive taxation. Absolutely. Because that's another thing that, another reason people don't love taxes is because so many taxes are regressive and, you know, they associate taxation with regressive economics. And this is coming from a state, Massachusetts, where progressive taxes are illegal in our constitution. I know. How can they still call us Taxachusetts? I don't know. (laughs) People, you don't know how bad it is here. (laughs) Rescue us. Oh, um, yeah. So I think that's all we've got. Uh, thank you so much for stepping in for Stephanie Julian. I loved having you on the program. Thank you for having me, Ben. Come back again oh, often. Please. Yeah. Um, and as a closing um, parting, uh, since Elizabeth Warren just dropped out of the race, uh-huh. I just want to listen one more time to oh. her takedown of Pete Buttigieg's Medicare for All Who Want It. Take Are you down ready for Mayor this? Pete. Do it. <laughs> So let's be clear, whenever someone hears the term Medicare for all who want it, understand what that really means. It's Medicare for all who can afford it. And that's the problem we've got. Medicare for all is the gold standard. It is the way we get health care coverage for every single American, including the family whose child's been diagnosed with cancer, including the person who's just gotten an MS diagnosis. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. That was a, such an eloquent, straightforward takedown of Medicare for all who want it. <laughs> it really was. It really was. And that's, that's what we're going to miss from Elizabeth Warren in the race, um, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, tune in next week for Medicare for All.